This episode contains descriptions of murder. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. The following is from the 415 Express by Amelia B. Edwards. The frightened wretch fell upon his knees. I didn't mean to harm him. I didn't mean to hurt a hair of his head. The chairman rose in his place, pale and agitated. Good heavens, he exclaimed. What horrible mystery is this? What does it mean? As sure as there is a God in heaven, said Jonathan Jelf, it means that murder has been done. I'm Alastair Murden, and this is Haunted Places Ghost Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Ghost stories have arisen from every century and every corner of the world, from the streets of Victorian Whitechapel to the temples of Japan. Whether seated around the campfire or curled up with a pair of headphones, we return to them time and again to feel our skin crawl and our hearts race. Episodes of Ghost Stories are inspired by classic short stories from some of history's greatest authors. The following version is our own unique take. It may feel familiar in some ways and different in others. We hope you enjoy it. You can find episodes of Ghost Stories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Today we're concluding Amelia B. Edwards' 1866 murder mystery, The 415 Express. This is the final entry in a two-part series, so if you haven't listened to part one yet, make sure you go back and start from the beginning. I will continue to narrate the story as the workaholic land surveyor William Langford. When our tale began, an exhausted Langford had returned home to England after an extended work assignment in Sweden. The job had left him quite depleted, and he suffered from disturbing dreams. Therefore, he decided a visit to see his old friend Jonathan Jelf in the country might do him good. On the journey, Langford coincidentally shared a train car with Mrs. Jelf's cousin, a self-important lawyer named John Dwerry House. At first, Langford didn't think much of the encounter. But upon arriving at the Jelf's home, he learned that Dwerry House was a dangerous fugitive accused of murder. Unsettled by the incident, Langford and Jelf returned to the train station to investigate but their prodding only uncovered more questions. The mystery of the 415 Express was growing murkier by the minute. Coming up, Langford is haunted by a sinister silhouette. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. 
there's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. I stared at the porter, Benjamin Summers, in utter disbelief. Just yesterday, Summers entered the compartment where I sat with the murderous lawyer, John Dwerryhouse. He took my ticket, and I saw him look directly at Dwerryhouse. But now he was claiming that he'd never seen Dwerryhouse that day. That I had been alone. The station master gave a derisive snort at Summers' account. As if sensing my distress, Jelf put a hand on my shoulder. But I couldn't contain myself. I glared at the young porter. But you told me you'd taken his ticket. Summers crossed his arms defensively. I said I'd taken the other passengers' tickets, but I never said nothing about taking a ticket from a convicted murderer. I realized he was right. Summers never spoke directly to Dwerry House. I wanted to argue, but in my befuddlement, I couldn't think of anything to prove Dwerry House had not been a figment of my imagination. I sank onto one of the platform's wooden benches, my mind reeling. Suppose I had imagined it. I could tell myself that a few disturbing dreams were nothing out of the ordinary. Even the odd visions could be explained away by overwork or a lack of sleep. But an entire conversation with an acquaintance? It was as if an invisible hand was tightening around my chest. I pressed a palm to my heart and felt an object in my breast pocket. It was the cigar case Dwerry House left on the train. I realized with a jolt, I did have proof after all. I jumped up to show Summers, but he and the station master had gone. I'd been so preoccupied with my thoughts, I hadn't even noticed them leave. I turned to Jelf instead. What about this? This is proof he was real. Jelf sighed. <sighs> well, it certainly looks like the one that Dwerry House carried, but what if it belongs to another man with the same initials? I went on. But there's also the comment he made to your wife that she needn't burn down the house for him the next time he visits. How could I have known about the fire that happened on Dwerry House's last trip to your home? Jelf frowned. I suppose that's true. I'm sorry. I don't mean to doubt you. It's just that the porter seems so certain. I gazed out at the station's surrounding marsh and mused. I'm starting to think that porter knows more than he's letting on. Jelf rubbed his temples and requested we head home. I wasn't eager to leave without answers, but Jelf seemed anxious to go. So I reluctantly agreed.
As we walked toward the waiting dog cart, my gaze drifted round the marsh once more. Only a few feet from where we'd tethered the horses was the same willow I'd seen from the platform once we arrived. Up close, it was even more looming. I suddenly stopped dead in my tracks. There, standing below the tree's delicate branches, was the dark silhouette. His familiar, rigid posture chilled me to my core. It was the same figure I saw night after night in my dreams, watching as I struggled to keep from sinking beneath the mire, and the very same figure I was sure I'd imagined just minutes ago when I watched this same willow from the platform. His features were still obscured by shadows, but this time I could make out the folds of his coat and a hand peeking out from a sleeve. It gripped a short rattan cane with a leather strap and a heavy lead ball at its end. I gasped at the sight of it. I knew this sort of cane. It was called a life preserver. I was frozen. Then the figure raised the cane above his head as if to throw it at me. I screamed and threw my arms over my face to protect myself. But nothing happened. I felt Jelf's hand on my shoulder and his worried voice ask if everything was all right. I whispered, Don't you see the man standing there? Jelf replied, What man? My stomach lurched and I quickly looked up. The figure was gone. I stared at the spot in disbelief before I finally murmured, my eyes must be playing tricks on me. Jelf watched me worriedly as he climbed up into the dog cart. I slid in beside him and glanced back at the willow one last time. Its drooping branches danced in the light breeze, but the figure was nowhere to be seen. That evening, I took a heavy meal, a warm bath and a glass of brandy. I knew I needed a good night's rest to shake these blasted hallucinations. But when I climbed into bed, sleep would not come. I couldn't stop thinking about Summers and Dwerry House and the strange silhouette that followed my every move. I tossed and turned until the sun peeked over the horizon. I was dressing for breakfast when there was a knock at my door. It was Jelf with a telegram from the East Anglian Rail Company. They'd heard about my encounter with Dwerry House and wanted me to come to London as soon as possible. They'd even arranged for my travel. My shoulders slumped and I sank onto the bed. I preferred to delay any trips until I was feeling more myself, but truthfully, I was growing unsure if that would ever happen. I supposed if I had to go, now was as good a time as any. Mere hours later, I settled into a train's private compartment. I tried to put worries of my disturbing visions aside and focus on what I'd say to the rail company. But as I stared out my window, I saw we were about to pass Stockbridge, the station where I'd glimpsed Dwerry House speaking with a sandy-haired man, and the same spot where just yesterday I had seen the haunting silhouette by the willow. I found myself wishing there was a way to find that sandy-haired man, 
it'd be a relief to speak to someone who'd also encountered Dwerry House that night. The train rattled through the countryside and my mind drifted. I leaned my head against the window and felt my eyelids grow heavy. Panic seized me when I opened my eyes and found I was back at the willow tree. I tried to run, but when I lifted my foot, thick vines twisted up around my ankles. They pulled me into the soft earth and I sank up to my waist. I frantically grabbed at the ground around me when my hand grasped a solid object. It was that cane, the life preserver. I awoke with a start to find my train pulling up to King's Cross Station. I rubbed my eyes and tried to steady myself. Somehow, the little sleep that I'd gotten had only made me feel worse. I only hoped I could pull myself together before my meeting. The East Anglian Rail Company headquarters were in a building adjoining King's Cross. It was a low, grey edifice with narrow windows. A dark entryway loomed over crumbling stone steps like a monstrous mouth about to swallow me whole. My stomach churned as I approached the cheerless monument. Even if I'd had a more pleasant reason for my visit, I still would have been reluctant to enter. But when I reached the top of the steps, I had a sudden sensation that I was being watched. I turned to take in the crowded thoroughfare below. That was when I saw him. He stood on the other side of the street, handing a coin to a vendor. It was the sandy-haired man from Stockbridge Station. I leapt down the steps with a cry. You there! The man glanced up at me. For a moment, he seemed as though he was about to speak. But then, he dropped the bun he'd just bought, turned on his heel, and ran. Coming up, Langford confronts a murderer. Pirates. For centuries, the world has been fascinated by them. In films like Pirates of the Caribbean, they're portrayed as swaggering anti-heroes. In books like Treasure Island, they're fearsome villains. But who were they really? That's the question that Real Pirates, the new Spotify original from Parcast, answers. The whole thing about a pirate ship is that they were heavily manned. But you could have 100 pirates on board, so these are floating violence factories. At the same time, pirates were really fascinating characters, in a way. If you were born poor, you stayed poor. Pirates, on the other hand, they were able to transcend that social boundary. They didn't see themselves just as thieves and brigands. They saw themselves as social revolutionaries. Set sail under the black flag alongside notorious outlaws like Blackbeard, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. Join us for episodes airing weekly starting November 15th. Follow and listen to Real Pirates for free on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. 
dashed down the front steps of the rail company's headquarters. I'd just seen the one witness who could prove the murderous fugitive John Dwerry House had been on the 415 Express two days ago, and I had to speak to him. But just as I called out to him, the man ran the other way. So naturally, I followed. My feet pounded the cobblestone as I saw the sandy-haired man hurry down an alleyway. I was about to step into the street. When a large carriage sped by just inches from my face, I stumbled back, startled. I waited, pulse racing for the coach to pass, then sprinted across the street. But the spot where the man had been was deserted. He was gone. My heart sank. The sandy-haired fellow was the only other person who could vouch for my story. Now, I would have to face the board of directors with nothing but a cigar case as proof. I trudged back to the ugly grey headquarters. For a moment, I thought I saw that same terrifying silhouette I'd seen at the station looming in the dark doorway. A chill rushed up my spine. I told myself that it was just a shadow. And as soon as I believed it, I took a deep breath and entered the building. Its inside was as unpleasant as the outside. The large entryway was furnished with a few high-backed wooden chairs and an enormous slab-like stone desk. I introduced myself to the gloomy secretary behind it, and he led me to a flight of steps. As we climbed the echoing metal staircase, I realized how much this building reminded me of my office in Sweden. It certainly had the same joyless atmosphere, and the familiar sense that this space was not meant for most human activities. It was a place for work. I imagined what my colleagues would say if they could see me now, about to stand before a company board claiming I'd shared a train compartment with a murderer. Would they think me foolish? Mad? Perhaps they'd be right. The secretary showed me into a windowless room, lit by a single gas lamp. A dozen grim businessmen were seated at a long table along the far wall. There was a row of chairs in front of them, a tribunal of sorts. I recognized the man seated at the end of the row. It was the porter of the 415 Express, Benjamin Summers. I nodded to Summers and received a disgruntled grimace in return. I reasoned he disliked being brought in for questioning and blamed me, though I hardly saw how it was my fault. One of the businessmen addressed me. Ah, Mr. Langford, just in time. I am Edward White, the chairman of the rail company's board. Mr. Summers has just finished filling us in on his version of events surrounding a certain fugitive. But I must say, we're all eager to hear your side of the story. Please, take a seat. I perched uneasily on a chair and recounted my trip. As I spoke, I noticed the board's expressions grow progressively doubtful. My nerves got the best of me, and my words became a jumbled mess. Beads of sweat sprang up on my forehead. When I finally stopped speaking, the chairman shook his head. The story that Summers has told us directly contradicts yours. 
I can think of only two explanations. Either Summers, a trusted member of this company and the nephew of one of its longest-term employees, is lying, or you are. My cheeks burned. I desperately fumbled around in my pocket to pull out the only evidence I had, the cigar case. I presented it to the chairman, asking, This belongs to Dwerry House. Is it proof enough? The chairman examined the case. I worked closely with Dwerry House and have seen this cigar case dozens of times. This is certainly it, but it doesn't explain the discrepancies between the two stories. I was at a loss. The board didn't believe me and I was coming off badly. I'd certainly be the talk of London after this fiasco, and if my superiors at the firm heard about it, I was done for. My only hope now was to get out of this room with a shred of my reputation intact. I ventured, is it possible that we are both mistaken? Perhaps there was a change of guards and it was some other porter who took my ticket. Summers shook his head, but the chairman appeared to be considering my desperate proposition. He murmured to the secretary beside him. Please summon Mr. Ricks and ask him to bring the shift logbook. The man nodded and left, shutting the door behind him. After a few minutes, the door opened again. The light from the hallway illuminated a man hovering in its frame. His face was in shadow, his body rigid with tension. My blood went cold. I'd recognize that silhouette anywhere. It was the man from my dreams. He stepped inside, and the room's only lamp lit up his features. I gasped. It was the sandy-haired man from the platform, the same one who'd run from me in the street. I leapt to my feet and cried, It's you! Perplexed, the chairman asked the sandy-haired man, Mr. X, do you know this gentleman? Rakes bristled. I should say so. He tried to attack me as I headed to the office. He had this look in his eyes. I was worried he might hurt me, so I ran. The chairman demanded to know why I would accost Mr. Rakes, who was a valued employee and uncle to Mr. Summers. I looked back and forth between Summers and Rakes in astonishment. They were related, and they'd both been at Stockbridge Station when Dwerry House vanished. What did it all mean? I suddenly abandoned any care about my reputation. Something strange was going on, and I was determined to get to the bottom of it. So I dug in and declared, This is the man I saw with Dwerry House on the platform two days ago. I know it without a shadow of a doubt. Rakes went pale. He shook his head. I wasn't anywhere near Stockbridge that day. I haven't been to Stockbridge since September. I mean to say that I haven't been there at all. Summers shot his uncle a tense look and the chairman leaned forward. Well, which is it? Have you never been to Stockbridge or were you there in September? 
Rake's eyes flitted from the chairman to the door, and for a moment, I thought he was going to run. But instead, he declared, I may have passed through in September, but I certainly wasn't there two days ago. Anyone in the office can attest to that. Several of the board members murmured their assent. The chairman then glared at me. There you have it. Now, enough of this nonsense. This meeting is over. I watched as the board quickly gathered their things. They all thought I was mad, and perhaps it was true. Maybe it was all in my mind. I suddenly balled my hands into fists. If they thought I'd lost my grip on reality, let them. But I wouldn't accept it myself. The only difference between a prophet and a madman is belief. I had nothing if I no longer believed what I had seen. So I stepped toward Rakes and seized his arm. My eyes bored into his as I cried, Tell them the truth. Tell them how you walked away from the platform with Dwerry House. How you, you took him beneath the willow tree. Startled, Rakes blurted out, I didn't mean to do it. Summers hissed at his uncle to be quiet, but Rakes had already broken. He continued babbling. I only meant to take the money. The chairman slammed a fist on the table and demanded Rakes explain himself. At the chairman's order, Rakes' confession poured from his lips. It was this place that made me do it. I couldn't bear it. Another day of endless, monotonous work. I needed to feel human again. I was only going to take the money and leave. I never wanted to kill Dwerry House. A hush fell over the room. Then Rakes fell to his knees and sobbed. After Rake's arrest, the chairman extended a sincere apology. And to my great relief, he never asked me to explain myself. The truth was that I couldn't have. My outburst about the willow tree was merely a leap of faith plucked from my hallucinations. But as it turned out, that was the very spot where Rake's had buried Dwerry House. Rakes insisted that he hadn't meant to do it. He'd heard that Dwerry House was to transport a large sum of company money to Mallingford and planned to intercept him on the platform at Stockbridge Station. The two men stood together under the glow of a gaslight, just as I'd seen in my vision. Rakes told Dwerry House that he was going to drive him to Mallingford. Then he lured him into the marsh by the station and hit Dwerry House with his own walking stick. Rakes had only meant to knock him unconscious and abscond with the money. Unfortunately for Dwerry House, the blow killed him. Rakes hastily buried Dwerry House under the willow tree and covered the spot with a pile of vines. At some point, Rakes had noticed the lawyer's cane, the life preserver. It was silver mounted and no doubt worth a pretty penny. So Rakes took it, hoping to sell it once he'd escaped to America. The only other person he told was his nephew, the porter, Summers. After the murder, Rakes feared it would look suspicious if he left the country. 
So he did the only thing he could do. He hid the money, squared his shoulders, and went back to work. John Dwerry House had been buried in the marsh for nearly a month when I saw him in that carriage. I still do not know who or what I spoke to on the train, but I do have a theory. A man like Dwerry House did the same thing day in and day out. He thought of nothing but work. That repetition was so ingrained, it left an imprint on his very soul. And perhaps what I saw was the echo of a man trapped in an endless cycle of papers and meetings, repeating in death what consumed him in life. Which is precisely why I decided to take some time off work. I had come too close to being swallowed whole by its monotony, just as Dwerry House and Rakes had. I've not had any visions or dreams since. Because as I said when I began my story, hard work is not always good for the soul. Too much toil can harden the heart, making monsters out of any one of us. Amelia B. Edwards spent her early years writing and painting until eventually she got a job as a journalist for the Saturday Review and the Morning Post. But when her parents died in 1861, she found herself at a crossroads. For the first time, she was completely alone. Wanting to leave Europe, Amelia decided to take time off to travel. By 1873, Amelia went to Egypt where she honed her skills as an artist and travel writer and even became a pioneer in archaeology. Amelia never married, and instead, she found happiness with her lifelong companion, Lucy Renshaw. Traveling gave Amelia the life she had always wanted. But the characters in her 1866 murder mystery, The 415 Express, have a different relationship to travel and work. The story presents the reader with a narrator who cannot escape the prison-like banality of the working world. On the very first day of his vacation, Langford is nearly bored into a slumber by an acquaintance who talks of nothing but his work. Eventually, this encounter drags him from his holiday and back to a gloomy boardroom in London where he's interrogated by tedious businessmen. And it is there that he meets Mr. Rakes, who is so desperate to escape his job that he was willing to kill for it. But, of course, the true victim of this tale is the ghost himself, John Dwerry House a man so consumed by his profession that he could not see how mundane his life had become. All he could think of was the next task and the one after that. It was an endless stream of work so constant, not even death could stop it. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places Ghost Stories. We will be back on Thursday with a new episode. 
You can find more episodes of Ghost Stories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free exclusively on Spotify. See you on the other side. Haunted Places Ghost Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Haunted Places Ghost Stories was written by Zoe Louisa Lewis, with writing assistance by Kate Murdoch and Alex Garland, fact-checking by Audriana Romero, and research by Mickey Taylor. I'm Alastair Murden. For centuries, the world has been fascinated by them. Blackbeard, Charles Vane, and Bonnie. Who were they really? Real Pirates is a new Spotify original from Parcast. Join us starting November 15th as we bring the true story of pirates to life.